I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the Essential Bible Studies podcast. My name is Tim Young. And my name is Jesse Adair. Welcome, Jesse. It's great to have you on the podcast, finally. We're going to be looking at a very important section of Scripture in our session today, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, what I read from, which is actually a section of Genesis where there's a curse put on the serpent. But embedded in that is a most remarkable, would you call it a a prophecy, like a, a promise? It's allegorical. It has types and meanings behind it that really play out through the rest of Scripture. It's really the first prophecy of the Bible when we get into it, so it's really interesting. I wouldn't say it's the first allegory. I, I thought about this, and I said, well, Adam and Eve, the creation of Eve, is is an allegory, right? And Genesis is just so filled of these wonderful types and, and meanings behind them. So just a quick overview of what we're going to be talking about here. When we look at this verse, there is basically four parties, should we say. There's the serpent, God is talking to. He then talks about the woman. So there's a serpent and the woman, and there's going to be enmity between those two. And then he talks about the seed of the serpent, or the offspring of the serpent, the children of the serpent, versus the children or the seed of the woman. And so if we break down this allegory, as we see it throughout Scripture, as we'll go through, the serpent represents this thinking of the flesh or the mind of the flesh, and in that way represents what is in opposition to God and represents sin. The woman herself, she was instructed in the way, the truth of God. She represents, therefore, the thinking of the spirit, the mind of the spirit. Then you have these offsprings that are against each other, and these two seeds, the they represent those who either, if they're following the mind of the flesh or they are partakers of those things and given to those things, they are the seed of the serpent. And on the other hand, there's the seed of the woman, which would represent those who follow after the things of the Spirit, who want to transform their minds to think like the things of God. That's it in a nutshell, but let's just kind of fill this out a little bit. Shall we, Jesse? Yeah. Now, well spoken there, actually, on the overview, because when you sort of approach the Bible, it is the quintessential story, really, that we should be looking into. And when you think about any story that has good value, there is, well, there's a setting, and there's characters, Mm. and there's conflict. Yeah. And if you kind of think of that from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 is the creation. And that really is the setting. That's where God's word is going to take place. In chapter 2, then we are introduced to some characters, in the Adam and Eve, etc. And then in chapter 3, now there's going to be a conflict. And if you can remember any of the stories that you've heard or read, they all have those components. A setting, characters, and now conflict. There's always conflict. You're kind of betraying your occupation, which is an English teacher. You love the narratives, don't you? (laughs) Isn't that so true? But you see, the Bible is the benchmark, right? It's the plumb line to which all other 
good stories uh, get their get their template. So when we consider, okay, well, what, what's going to happen with this conflict? Well, it is, as you mentioned, there's going to be a few parties involved in this conflict. And so take, for example, there is a verse in chapter 3, verse 1. And when this verse comes up, there's almost like a foreshadowing. You can almost feel that something is, yeah. is, is going to happen. So, for example, the verse says, verse 1, Genesis 3, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And then the serpent is going to have a conversation with Eve. And it says, And the serpent said unto the woman, that's Eve, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And it's kind of interesting because when you think about the subtlety of this beast, which in this case is a serpent, he observes and he he points out this question to Eve and he asks it as a question. Yeah. And, you know, when we're asked a question, now we have to think and we have to make a choice. Right. And the question is, which trees can you actually eat of in this garden? So whether the serpent was observing, he certainly lived in the garden. He was very unassuming. But this question really is going to bring about this conflict. And if this question would not have been posed, who knows? The story would have certainly been different. Right. It's interesting there in the detail. It says he was more crafty, King James says, subtle than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So he's just associated with the animal instinct, which is just more fleshly, more more earthy in that sort of sense. So it just seems like he's observing and just speaking forth the things of his mind without any sort of moral repercussions because the serpent wasn't made in the image of God, as we learned in an earlier podcast. He was part of these beasts of the field that were different from man in that respect. Yes, yeah, certainly. It's nothing but natural. And this is going to be one of the themes that comes up in this topic, natural right. versus spiritual thinking. So he questions the very commandments of God, and he questions the very consequences of God by disobeying that, by saying, oh, you're not going to die. You shall not surely die if you eat of this fruit, which was a complete lie. And that's the problem is that the woman was beguiled by that kind of thinking that the serpent was questioning and bringing forth, right? When we come to Genesis 3, verse 15, and then the sentence actually comes upon the serpent, he's talking to the serpent, although the serpent doesn't say anything in response, but he's verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. The serpent seems to be changed and cursed to actually have to go on the ground and lick the dust of the earth. That's the kind of association the snake now has with this earth or earthy aspect so in the Bible, there's a difference between earthly type of thinking and heavenly type of thinking. And this is what the, I think the serpent now represents, this earthly type of, of thinking. And this thinking is unaccepting of God's commands. Right. Because when Eve did respond, she did give what generally was told her. Here are the parameters of how we are to live in this garden. And the serpent did not accept that. Mm. Now, is amoral, etc., but it then went into this further component of their conversation. Well, you're not going to die. And that is kind of a spirit that we're going to get into 
that it's unaccepting of what God actually has said. Right. It's it's almost like it will not find a way to be obedient. Right. It, it's sort of this is like the root going forward. I think the key word for us here is how verse 15 starts off. It actually creates a enmity between two parties. So when we disobey God, we basically make him a liar by not following his commandments or not believing what he says. We are at enmity with God. We are enemies with him. That's a strong term, but that's the way it is. The Bible uses that word throughout Scripture. And so God says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. So this enmity, you know, we generally don't like snakes, <laughs> I think, as, I as human beings. But there's that natural kind of repulsion. But I think there's something even more and above this that the Bible speaks about, an enmity between two parties. And it really comes out in Romans chapter 8. If we turn over there, I think if you have this Genesis 3 verse 15 passage in mind and you, you read Romans chapter 8, you can almost see how Paul has it in mind as well. And it's in Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 where he says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, I'm reading from the ESV there. But Jesse, I think yours uses the word enmity there, doesn't it? In That's the King right. James. You're reading from the King James. And so hostile or is that enmity with God? And it's that word enmity again. The thing that is an enmity here is the mind that is set on the flesh versus the mind that is set on the things of the spirit. Yeah, in that carnal mind here now spoken in Romans 8, it's like a natural mind. Mm -hmm. This is the, it's been said, a default setting at which we have presently. And that's a struggle. There's always going to be a struggle as long as that mind exists. And all of us will feel that struggle at different points. Right. The temptations. The temptations. Mm -hmm. Some will be strong. Some will be minor. So when it speaks of these two parties from these two seeds that sort of began in Genesis 3, this will go on for a long time and has gone on for a long time. Yeah. So if one side is this carnal mind, or we might say natural mind, then the other would be like a spiritual mind or the mind of the spirit. And so, for example, it's sort of contrasted a little further up in Romans 8, and this is in verse 5, where Paul says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. So that would be the carnal mind, the natural mind, that's one. And then two, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Right, yep. And so you might kind of further characterize these two seeds, these two minds, as one is the way of man and one's the way of God. Right. It's in the context, too, all about death and life, just like in the garden. The serpent said, you shall not surely die. But in that verse 6 here, Romans chapter 8, verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. And then there's also a contrast between the submission to God's law in verse 7. So there was a law in the garden that was broken, 
And he's saying the same thing here. That mind of the flesh that sets itself against God disobeys God's commandments, and the outcome there is death. But the opposite, therefore, is the mind of the Spirit, which brings life and peace, which obeys God. So there's that aspect of it, I think. That's what Genesis 3, verse 15 is is starting to talk about. This is the introduction of sin into the world and this continual clash between the, the flesh and the Spirit. But then it goes on to talk about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The ESV uses the term offspring, and it's the idea of children or sons and daughters. So when we think about a seed, that's what it's talking about. Now, when you have a seed of the serpent, like we're not talking about literally snake babies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to be talking about a way of thinking or to see this as allegorical about those who follow that type of thinking, those who set their mind on the flesh really are children of the serpent in the way that they think. Now, this type of symbology is actually used throughout the Bible, and you really want to tune into that. And just to give you an example, Psalm 58, verses 3 through 4, this is a really good example. It says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear. So the symbology here is somebody like a serpent is actually the wicked, those who do not follow God's law. And you can see that here. They are estranged from the womb. So there you got the seed aspect, the seed of the serpent. They go astray from birth. Speaking lies, again, the serpent told the lie. And then they have venom like the venom of a serpent. So venom is poison, isn't it? That's the thing that we really fear about snakes is when you have a venomous snake and it bites you, you're going to die. Yeah, and those who are estranged from the womb here in Psalm 58 verse 3, and it harkens back to after the consequences of the garden, when Adam and Eve then went forth and they had children, They would pass on to all their children Mm. really two things. They would pass on their image and likeness. That's the words that's used in in Genesis 5. But really what that means is that they were mortal, they were going to die, and that they would have this capacity and really an inclination to want to disobey. Yeah, a propensity. Propensity, Yeah. yeah. And those are really the two things that have been passed on. Right? Yeah. So right away when we're born and we grow and we're we're nurtured and we we come to a certain age where we mature and we start to make our own decisions, etc., then we have to then decide which way will we pursue, right? Mm -hmm. And in Matthew 23, when the Lord was meeting sort of the end of his ministry, he addresses these spiritual men. They were supposed to be spiritual men, and they're called scribes and Pharisees. Right, yeah. And that's kind of important because you would think that these scribes and these Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, supposed to be the benchmark of spiritual purpose in Israel, they weren't. And so in Matthew 23, he says in uh, verse 33, speaking of these scribes and Pharisees, he calls them serpents. And a generation of vipers— how can ye escape damnation of hell? 
So here you have really the Lord Jesus Christ, who we know is going to be on one side. Yeah. <laughs> and we have these supposedly spiritual individuals, the scribes and the Pharisees, but they're actually on the other side. And that's kind of important because these two ways are not always that clear. It's not like, well, that person is definitely evil. Mm. And therefore, I'm not like them, so I must be good. You have to actually parse out on a daily basis whether we are upholding the mind of the flesh or the mind of the spirit. And when he called them a generation of vipers, like we think, oh, he, he just he sort of called them like a rattlesnake or, or a brown snake, right? But this would have been maybe the highest condemnation that he could have given them. Right. Because they would have known what the serpent represented yeah. throughout the Bible. They would not have taken this well. In no. fact, we know they didn't. I mean, they would have caught that illusion because when he says generation of vipers, that word generation has the idea of seed behind it, the offspring. So that would have taken their minds right back to Genesis 3.15 and what that all meant. Yeah. If Jesus is saying, we're that, then he indirectly is saying he is something different. He is the seed of the woman. Yeah. And boy, that would have just caused them tremendous consternation, of which they already would have had, because this is towards the tail end of this sort of discourse here in Matthew 23. Yeah. That reminds me, there's another time when he had a conflict with the Pharisees. It's in John chapter 8. And they really had a really a knockdown kind of drag out argument here. It was very intense. And it really is about who is the seed of Abraham, who are the true children of Abraham. So it, it deals again with this idea of whose seed are you? Are you the seed of the serpent or are you the seed of the woman? And it's in verse 44 where Christ really alludes to Genesis 3 verse 15. And he says, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires or his lusts. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now that is very pointed towards the Jews and the Pharisees that were in opposition to him. But he says, you are of your father the devil. Now that word devil is an interesting word. We haven't got into it too much in the podcast but you can see the allusion back there to Genesis. The devil is really anything that's in opposition to God or adversarial to God, and that is a false accuser that tells lies. And so in the context of what he's talking about here, really it's sin, which is the devil. It's personified in this sense, as it does in Scripture, and we'll see this later on. But when you look back in verse 34, this is the way that this whole conversation started. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So that gets back to this, he who has his mind set on the flesh. It's basically anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so they were born out of that mindset. They sought to kill Jesus. And that was the, the same aspect that they hated the things of righteousness, of what Christ was saying to them. And they were really showing forth that mindset of the serpent or the devil. You know, some people think that the serpent in the garden was 
taken over by something, right? But it never mentions that in Genesis. It just very straightforwardly says the serpent was one of the beasts of the field which God had made. And I often ask people, well, did Satan become a serpent or did the serpent become a Satan? Right. I mean, if you understand the word devil and Satan, it's apparent that the serpent became a devil. It became the devil in that sense. It represented what is in complete opposition to God and and enmity with God, which is the thinking of the flesh, sin, which produces death. And really the two sides in sort of when you distill it down here in this John 8, in particular in verse 44, there really is this conflict struggle, which we're not surprised because this is the whole, Mm. one of the main themes of scripture, is between two fathers because one father is the father of lies. Mm-hmm. And that was where the serpent proposed that you would not surely die back in Genesis 3. And if the serpent on one side is the father of lies, then God on the other side is the father of truth. And that has significant implications of which side we, in a sense, choose to fall on. Because you mentioned there earlier this contrast, and in verse 35 of John 8, the contrast is even more delineated mm. between a servant yeah. and a son. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a servant has like zero free will in the sense like things are taken away from them. So if we choose to be a, a slave, then we're really forfeiting our choosing in that way because we'll just naturally be doing things and we're, we're serving the flesh. But a son, a son has blessings and inheritance and a hope there really begins you down a long journey which has complete opposite rewards mm. where one will result in death and the other will result in life. So there's a lot to consider that Jesus is saying yeah. based on this idea of the fatherhood of who he's speaking to and who he is. That's interesting. I never thought about that aspect because he does say the son. And when we go back to Genesis 3, verse 15, it talks about the seed of the woman. Now, in in this case, I think the seed of the woman is particularly Christ, right? He is the the promised seed. He was the one who's going to overcome sin and death. And one of the proofs of this is found in Galatians chapter 3. Now, in Galatians 3, it's talking about the seed of Abraham, not the seed of the woman, but these are part of promises. There's three different promises given in Scripture, one to the serpent here in Genesis 3.15, one to Abraham, and then one to David. And they all speak about a seed to come. And so if we get the connections here in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring— It does not say unto offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So Paul gets it right down to the the singularity. It's not saying it's a plurality of seeds. There's one seed. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that gives us the clue here that when we come back to Genesis 3.15, what is prophetic about this? It's a messianic prophecy. It's speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that seed who is to come. And this is what's so universal about the Bible is in Genesis 3, like you mentioned, there's there's a few characters that are involved. And then, you know, as time moves forward, then the Lord Jesus Christ and you might say his opponents in his ministry, they're involved. 
And now here in Galatians 3, there's, as time has moved forward yet again, now it kind of becomes more personal because now we're involved and we have the decision of what we're going to do. And this is uh, sort of aptly represented here, like in the tail end of the chapter. For example, in Galatians 3 verse 26, Paul says, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And what's amazing about this whole topic is it's not like things are set in stone. You can always choose to change sides. Mm. Now, if you change sides and you're walking after the mind of the spirit and you now choose to walk after the mind of the flesh, you know, there'll be significant and, and sad consequences. But if you are walking after the mind of the flesh, you can always choose to change to walk after the mind of the spirit. Right. And with that thinking in mind, in verse 28 of Galatians 3, you think about these uh, categories of, of individuals, which I'll read in a second. They had no choice. They could not change in real life. Okay, yeah. So, for example, in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That's sort of another word for Gentile. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the beauty of the gospel message is you can choose. You can decide which way you want to walk down. God has laid them out. But a Jew can never become an un-Jew or a Gentile right. can never become an un-Gentile and then certainly a slave. I mean, the ways that a slave in this time of which Paul was writing were extremely difficult, right? Yeah. You know, a free man, the last thing you'd ever want to be is become a slave in the Roman Empire, et cetera. So yeah. you get the idea. And that's what's really kind of critical to think is there's always time to make a good decision. Yeah. I think what you're talking about is like we're born into a family. It's not like we can change our family. That's what we're born with in the flesh. But we can be born again by baptism into a new family to become the sons and daughters of God, as it says here. So become that part of the seed of the woman in the promise. Yeah. It's also that verse 29 here in Galatians 3, verse 29. If you are Christ, that is through baptism by putting on Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So there's that word offspring again, or seed, your Abraham's seed. So that's how we become part of the seed of the woman. So Christ is that singular seed, but we are part of that seed by being baptized into him. So we are one with Christ, being that one seed, that is the promised seed. Yeah. Now, that's not all that Genesis 3 verse 15 has to say. If we start building up these ideas about what these things symbolize, it does also say the very end of the verse— he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what is that talking about? Because the he there, I take, is the seed of the woman, first of all. He shall bruise your head, and that your head is the head of the, the serpent. And that word bruise there has the idea of crushing, to inflict a wound. When you crush something, like in your skin, you're bruised, right? So he shall bruise your head, and then it says you, and still talking to the serpent here, right, in the context, you shall bruise his heel. Now, his heel is the heel of the seed of the woman, which 
we're saying is Christ himself. So there's a head and there's a heel, and there's a wound that's afflicted on both, and they both seem to be, I would say, happening at the same time. So the heel is the hardest part of our foot. And if you were thinking of killing a serpent, you would do it with your heel placed upon the head of that snake. But I think most of us, rather than doing that, we'd probably run the other way, especially if the snake is venomous, because we know there is a chance that if we step on that snake, it's going to turn around and bite us in the heel. But which wound, I guess, is more fatal? The wound of the head is very fatal. But if you get wounded in the heel, it's not as fatal. It's more of a temporary kind of wound. So if we relate that to what Christ did, it's really relating to his death and his resurrection because he died. Christ died, but it was temporary. The grave could not hold him because he had done no sin and therefore he was resurrected. So that death three days in the grave temporarily is like a wound to the heel. But the wound to the head is more fatal. It speaks to what Christ did in his sacrifice by overcoming sin, that we might have this forgiveness of sins, and that ultimately the enemy's sin and death might be put away, right? Yeah, and to further explore, the heel bite is temporal. It is painful, but Mm, it's temporal. Yeah. And the crushing of the head is permanent. And it is very applicable to say that Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy, because it is, is looking forward. And then there's a, a little passage in Hebrews 2 when the writer to the Hebrews is almost as it were looking backward of what came to pass when the bruising in the heel and the crushing of the head took place. And this is in Hebrews 2. And in verse 14, it gives this finality of what Christ has actually accomplished. And because he's accomplished this, it gives also the possibility and the hope that others can receive of its benefit as well. Mm -hmm. So take, for example, in Hebrews 2 and verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And the he there is Christ. And it's emphasizing that Christ was born into this world and he had to overcome the temptations of which beset all men and women. And because of that, he was then able to have power over it because he had to choose to have power over it. Mm -hmm. And that's really important in terms of our sort of association with Christ. And so further in verse 14, because of all these things, it was through death that he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So when we actually think of what this means is the only way to destroy was to actually die. Yeah. And that's what Genesis 3.15 says, that when he was going to be crushing the serpent's head, he knew that he would be bit in the heel. And it's sort of a sobering thing to think, like how many of us would actually go through with that if we knew what had to transpire in order for us to achieve the end goal. And that really makes Christ laying down of his own life even so much more sobering 
and to think that this was a high mountain to climb and he was willing to climb it mm -hmm. in order to achieve the finality of destroying that which had the power of death, the devil, and no more dominion over him. Right. And what does that mean for us? Well, if he has no more dominion over him, the power of death, then we can have that too. Because we know today that we will eventually die. There's no doubt about it. I guess except if Christ were to return. But that's um, that's getting into things like the resurrection, the kingdom coming. So this is an incredible hope that we can follow in that same sort of reward if we take on the mind of the Spirit right. and have the same attributes yeah. of which Jesus had. Yeah, I line that that aspect. He's, he will destroy him that has the power of death. That destroy is the crushing of the head. But here we're introduced to that term again, the devil, who has the power of death. And we know in equality, what has the power of death? Well, the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Romans. Really, it's sin that confines us to the grave, to this mortality. And so the devil in this aspect is sin. This is where we get this idea. The devil is the personification of sin. Because what did Christ do in his death and resurrection? He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, it says in Hebrews as well. So we can see that parallel, that enmity then against Jesus Christ and the seed of the woman versus the serpent or the thinking of the mind of the flesh. Because Jesus never sinned. That's how he overcame, right? Yeah, and both the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman would have a triumph. Mm. Both would triumph, but ultimately the seed of the woman, like that triumph would be eternal. Right. And that's really important because the effectiveness of uh, their power, if you want to call it, they're not the same. And it kind of just alludes to uh, sort of a well-known chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, which oftentimes... And it, is called the resurrection chapter. There's a few other themes that are found in the chapter as well, but resurrection is certainly a key one. And it begins uh, sort of in this section for our purposes in verse 25. And it speaks about how this enmity will reach a conclusion. Ultimately, it will be finished. There will be a finality to it. So for example, in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 15, for he, that's Christ, must reign until he, that's God, hath put all enemies under Christ's feet. Hmm. And God will put the last enemy that shall be destroyed, and that will be death. Interesting, yeah. So it uses the idea of enmity under the feet and this enemy being death. Yeah, and that's really important because ultimately that's what we want. Right. We don't want death to be our final conclusion. Right. Because then there's no hope. Right. We want sin to be eradicated from the earth right? mm -hmm. so that God can be all in all. This is really talking about the end of God's purpose, isn't it? While there's still this enmity in ourselves, right, because we're still flesh and blood and we have these temptations like you're saying, in the long run, to overcome that, we will have to be made immortal through the resurrection. And that's the full purpose of God is that all those who believe and trust in him as that seed of the woman will be changed have to be they will be made immortal incorruptible so question might come up well what do we do today because this is sort mm -hmm. of looking in the future and it's a great hope to look forward to so today we would want to demonstrate to god in our everyday thoughts and actions that we really want that to take place 
Mm-hmm. So we're willing each day to crush in our own lives the serpent's head. We're demonstrating to God that this is our sort of whole desire and our whole attitude towards temptation and towards the inclinations to sin. Yeah. Yeah. We want to show that to God. Yeah. Um, and that way, in the future day, we can have the humble but earnest expectation that some of the other things in First Corinthians 15, which are spoken about, will happen with us and with the earth. And I guess that's where we get into the later verses, like, for example, in verse 54 and 55 and 56. First Corinthians 15, yeah. First Corinthians 15. Like, take, for example, in verse 54, when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? And O grave, where is thy victory? And these are clearly rhetorical questions in verse 55. (laughs) And that's that's terrific because we know the answer. And verse 56 says, for the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which give us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's it's right back to the mind of the spirit and the mind of the flesh. Right. And there's echoes there back to Genesis 3, verse 15, because it talks about that sting of death. It's like a venomous sting or poison. That's sin. The sting of death is sin. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So all this relates back to the plan of God from the very beginning, Genesis 3, verse 15, you think about it, to the very end of everything is this overcoming this enemy through the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we all might be part and one with him. Great way to end. Thanks, Jesse. It's been a good session, I think. As with so many of these studies, we just kind of we skim over it, I think. You, there's, you can go so deep into it, and there's so many of these illusions in the Bible that really help us to frame our mind against this battle of the sin in the flesh versus the mind and the spirit. Thank you very much. My pleasure. We'd like to meet you. Every Tuesday night, we meet online for a Zoom Bible study. Come by and just say hi. It's an informal group discussion format where everybody is encouraged to ask questions and share their perspectives on the scriptures. I think you'll really like it. It happens every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To get the Zoom meeting link, go to our website at www.essentialbiblestudies.org and fill out the form. Speaking of questions, if you ever have a question about the podcast or the subject matter, then drop it on us at our website contact form. Again, that's www.essentialbiblestudies.org. Essential Bible Studies is also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's just so many ways you can share the love of God's Word. This podcast is produced by the Book Road Christadelphians located in the Golden Horseshoe of Ontario, Canada. That's on the western end of Lake Ontario, just up the hill from Coots Paradise. Find out more at www.bookroadchristadelphians.ca. Until next time, my dear friends, 
May God help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.